And, you know, I, I know you would expect me to say that because I'm here tonight preaching. And so I, I doubt that many preachers would get up and say anything bad about the guy who invites him to come. But I will say that I really, truly appreciate uh, Brother Steins and his friendship to me and his graciousness. And uh, we've enjoyed uh, his fellowship over the years and his gracious spirit. And so uh, he's mighty kind. I think he has me come back just because he feels sorry for me and hoping I do better than I did the last time. <laughs> and you all are just so patient to let him do that. And I want to thank you for that. Uh, my wife is not able to be with me. Uh, some of you may know we have a Christian school. And uh, so we have the last few weeks, we've had two or three events each week in the evenings. And that's typical at the end of the year. We had a sports banquet. We had a fine arts concert. Uh, we had kindergarten graduation last night. And uh, my son will graduate from high school on Friday night. Brother Paulie will be preaching that graduation uh, service on Friday night. So we've been going and going and going. And so my wife is not able to be here. But she said to make sure to tell you hello. And, and maybe if, if the preacher will ever have me back, I'll bring her next time. Okay? And uh, you'll enjoy meeting her a whole lot more than you will enjoy meeting me. But I'm, I'm so glad to be here. Exodus chapter number 17 and verse number 8. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek and Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed and when he let down his hand Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy and they took a stone and put it under him and he sat thereon and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisi. For he said, because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. I'd like for us to get the picture tonight of what is taking place. The children of Israel have been delivered by the mighty arm of God from Egyptian bondage. They have crossed the sea on dry land and as Pharaoh and his armies pursued after the people of Israel, God shut the sea in on top of them. And they all died. But the people of God made it safely to the other side. And the people of God were heading to the land of Canaan, the land of promise. The place that God had 
designed for them. They were going into Canaan as instruments of God's judgment. And they were also going there to inhabit that land and experience God's blessings. They were going to be instruments of God's judgment against the Canaanites. We understand that when the children of Israel go into uh, the, the city of Jericho, Rahab the harlot takes the two spies into her house and she says, we know that God, your God, is the true God. And we know what he did to Pharaoh. We, we know what he did and how he has delivered you. And we know that this city is surely delivered into your hands. You see, not only were they the instruments of God's judgment, but they were the messengers of God's grace. And so here they are marching to Canaan. And as they're marching to Canaan, an enemy comes up, Amalek. Amalek is a descendant of Esau. Amalek represents the flesh and everything that stands against God. Do you know that you and I have a threefold enemy tonight? The world is our enemy. I'm not talking about people necessarily that you see. I'm talking about the system of this world. And by the way, the system of this world is controlled by the prince of this world. He's our second enemy. That's the devil. The devil is our enemy. He's our adversary. He walks about as a roaring lion. And he's seeking whom he may devour. And the world and the devil work in concert against us. But do you know we have a third enemy that's probably, probably the greatest enemy we faced. And that's ourselves. That's our flesh. That's our corrupt bodies. That's our sin nature. And though we are redeemed, we still have a sin nature. Paul said it this way. He says, the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And so we all understand that we're in a battle with ourselves. Paul said, I want to do that which is good, Romans chapter 7, but I don't do it. And he said, I don't want to do the things that are bad, but I end up sometimes doing them. Can you relate to Romans chapter 7? When I read Romans chapter 7, I'm comforted because that's me. And so I have an enemy, you have an enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Amalek represents for us the enemy that opposes us. Along this journey of life, having been delivered by the mighty arm of Jesus, who bore our sins on the cross, who conquered death and hell in the grave, who destroyed and crushed the serpent's head, uh, having received the victory... Now I'm on my way in the Christian life to the land of blessing and fulfillment in Christ. Uh, Canaan is not heaven. Canaan is what the Christian life ought to be. It is walking in communion with God. And so, on the way, in the journey, there's an adversary out there who wants to stop me. And in Genesis chapter 17, his name is Amalek. I think it's interesting that God said to, excuse me, God said to Moses in verse 14, write this for a memorial in a book. 
Aren't you glad we don't have to figure everything out on our own? Aren't you glad that God has written some things as a memorial in a book? And here it is all these thousands of years later, and we've got the book. It's the book of God. And so there's a, there's a wonderful lesson that we receive in this passage. We find that when Amalek comes against Moses, that Moses tells Joshua, he says, you choose out men, verse number 8, and go and fight. So you get the army together and you go fight them down in the valley. While you're doing that, I'm going to go up to the top of the hill and I'm going to intercede. I'm going to pray. I'm going to stand before God. And uh, we find that Moses did that. Aaron and Hur went with him. We find that when Moses held up the rod of God and he held his hands up into the heavens and stood before God, we find that while he did that, Joshua and the army prevailed over Amalek. But we find that the moment that Moses' hands grew heavy and he began to drop his hands, we find that Amalek then began to prevail over Joshua and the men. There's a great lesson in this for you. Because God has your interest at heart. God is your Savior. The Lord Jesus died on the cross for you. And he has a plan and a purpose for your life. He wants you to serve him. He wants you to experience the blessings of knowing him. And the Lord established a community for us. Just like he established a nation, he's established a nation now of peculiar people. That's the church of the living God. You're part of that nation, aren't you glad? And so God has established this nation of people and he, he wants you to experience the joy and blessing of serving Him. He wants to bless your families. He, he wants to bless your children. Hey, listen, the greatest thing you can know tonight is that your family is serving God. That your children know the true and the living God. That's the greatest comfort that any of us can have. I have five children. We just had our first grandchild. He turned 10 months old uh, just uh, yesterday, and we're so thankful for our family. And the greatest thing that we know about our family is that our children know the Lord Jesus as their Savior. Now, as they grow older and they begin to think about getting married and, and you're praying for the right people to come into their life, uh, you get a little, you get a little uh, intense about that, you know. You're, you're wondering, well, what's the Lord going to do here? And you're praying that your children will follow what they've been taught. And so the greatest thing that we can know is that our children know God and they're serving God. Because we live in a wicked world. And there are many dangers and toils and snares. And so I, I want to help you understand that tonight you have an enemy. An enemy who hates you. An enemy who desires to destroy you and destroy your children. An enemy who hates this church and hates our church at Tabernacle Baptist. And he wants to do everything he can to destroy the work of God and to disrupt the people of God. And so he sends Amalek against us. And here we find the secret of the victory. It is when the man of God was on the mountain with his arms raised, interceding, on behalf of the people, and as he did so, 
the victory was secured. But the moment that the hands of the man of God grew heavy and he could no longer bear them up, then the enemy prevailed. So I want to speak to you this evening on this subject, holding up the hands of God's man. Holding up the hands of God's man. I want you to notice three things with me tonight. First of all, I want you to see the heavy hands of God's man. The heavy hands of God's man. The Bible tells us in verse number 11, It came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Verse 12, But Moses' hands were heavy. I remember when I was in the second grade, I got in trouble. And I had to stand in the corner of the room. And I had to hold two textbooks like this. Anybody ever have to do that? I had to do it. And I remember being told how long I had to do that. And while I held those textbooks, you know what happened. At first it was okay. But after a while it began to hurt. And it began to hurt to the point that I didn't have the strength any longer and I began to have my hands drop. And I remember my teacher saying, hey, lift those books. And I was whining and I was crying and I was trying to get out of that situation. But I learned something there. I learned a lesson. That's to do what my teacher tells me to do. To not disrupt the class. But I learned that you can only do so much. You can only do so much. And that's the lesson I I hope that you see tonight concerning God's man, concerning the pastor of this church. Unless you think I'm drawing a parallel that's not biblical, the Bible speaks of the children of Israel as the church in the wilderness. Moses was the prophet of God. He was the messenger of God. And God, who established his church, sends a shepherd to that church. Now, Jesus is the chief shepherd, but he sends an under-shepherd, someone who is serving him, who will be faithful to do the ministry and, and preach the truth of God's word. That's your pastor. You see, the work of the ministry is more than one person can do. Paul spoke in 2 Corinthians chapter number 11 of his trials, his afflictions, and all the things that he suffered. And on top of that, when he finished that list, this is what he said in verse 28. He said, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. I know your pastor's had a busy day today. And we thank God that though there's some troubles and trials that people have dealt with, Uh, It doesn't seem to be grave. You think about this man who was burnt in this fire and you you can certainly sympathize with what he's going through. Let me tell you, your pastor carries those burdens. He wants to minister to those people. He wants to help them. He carries the burdens of families who are struggling, people who are sick, those who are discouraged, those who at one time seemed like they were on fire for God, but something has happened and something has changed and now you don't find them in the center of the ministry anymore. You sort of find them sitting on the fringes. At first, they're not here on Sunday nights. And before long, you don't see them consistently on Sunday morning. And I want you to know that your pastor... 
who loves his people carries that burden. I want you to look with me, if you would, please, in 1 Peter chapter number 5. 1 Peter chapter number 5. Three times after the resurrection of Jesus, the Lord said to Peter, If you love me, feed my lambs. And we come to 1 Peter chapter number 5, and we find that Peter, who has been converted, is now strengthening his brethren. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. Notice what the Bible says here. The elders which are among you I exhort, whom also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Notice verse 2. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, that's Jesus, when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Now here in First Peter chapter number 5, we find uh, an apt description of the pastor. We find there are three words that are used here. First of all, you find the word elder in verse number 1. Then you find in verse number 2 this statement, feed the flock of God. And when you think about feeding the flock, you think about a shepherd. And the word pastor literally means shepherd. And so we find two terms to describe the function of the pastor. He is an elder, number one. He is a pastor, number two. And then notice, if you would please, again in verse number two, taking the oversight thereof. The word oversight is the word that we get the word bishop from. Bishop. And so we find three titles for the office of the pastor. They're three different titles, but they're the same office because they describe three different functions that the pastor is to carry out. First of all, he is to be an elder. Uh, an elder is a person who has uh, demonstrates maturity. Do you know that there are decisions the pastor has to make? There are conflicts that need to be resolved. There is counseling that needs to be conducted. There is a direction that needs to be determined. There are dangers which need to be avoided. And there are obstacles which need to be removed. And in the ministry of the church and in helping families, you need a man who has been called of God, who has uh, a man who has walked with God, and a man who demonstrates maturity. He's an elder, not a novice. And then that word pastor, verse number two, means that he is primarily responsible for the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer and to visit those in their need. That's what a pastor does. And I know that you have a pastor who takes those responsibilities uh, very seriously. Then we come to the word oversight. Again, that's the same term that we get the title of bishop. And we find that he is to take the oversight. That means he is to manage the affairs of the church, the ministries of the church, the business and the finances of the church, the buildings and the grounds of the church. I see you're taking an offering for the flooring and different projects. And by the way, God's given you a beautiful place to worship him. That's a wonderful thing. It's a great testimony concerning our God. 
that everything be done in a way that is pleasing. And so I want you to see tonight that your pastor has three major responsibilities. As the elder, he's to demonstrate spiritual maturity. As the pastor, he is to care for and feed the flock of God and tend to the flock. And then as the bishop, he is to take the oversight thereof. And can I tell you from experience that that is a big responsibility? And that is a responsibility that is beyond me. And I believe if you're a pastor, and I know him, he's a humble man, I'm sure he would say that is a responsibility that is beyond him. The only way that he and I can fulfill those responsibilities is because of the gifts and callings of God, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, and because we serve alongside the people of God. Because the hands of God's man are heavy hands. Therefore, he cannot do it all himself. It brings me to the second thing. I hope you'll write it down. The helping hands of godly men. You see, that's how the ministry is done. Not just because the preacher's strong and he's able to keep his hands up. Although he may be for a time. But he will not be able to continue unless... He has the helping hands of godly men. Notice what happens again in our text, Exodus chapter number 17 and verse number 12. But Moses' hands were heavy. There's a problem. Can you imagine Aaron and her up there looking down on the field, uh, uh, the valley, the battlefield, looking down, and Moses got his hands up, and they're saying, Oh, Moses, it's going great. Joshua's winning the battle. And Moses, well, that's wonderful, man. I'm getting tired. I'm getting weary. And those hands just begin to fall. He says, well, I just got to rest them for a few minutes and then I'll I'll come back up. Oh, Moses, it's not good down there. It's not good. The enemy's prevailing. You got to get your hands back up, Moses. I just can't hardly do it. I tell you what, Moses, we're going to help you. We're going to help you. Now, you know, I can't help but think Aaron and her, they might have had some kids and some grandkids down in that battlefield. They, they, they might have had some, some, some of their loved ones down there, some cousins, some, some nephews, some neighbors. They had some people down there that they cared about. They didn't want to see them die. So they said, we're going to help you. Notice what happens in verse 12. And they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat there on. Well, that was a nice help. Really, it was. I want you to imagine they found a big boulder up there and they said, hey, Moses, come back here and lean on this thing. Or maybe they happened to roll it over to where he was. I'm not sure what happened. All I know is that they found a stone big enough that he could sort of rest against. Do you know what that stone signifies? That stone signifies Jesus. He is our rock. And friend, when we don't have strength to stand as, as Christians, as pastors, as fathers and mothers, when we don't have the strength to stand, aren't you glad we can lean on Jesus? Amen. And so Moses, expressing in humility his dependence upon the Lord, begins to lean on the solid rock. Amen. But not only that, notice what happens. And Aaron and her stayed up his hands. The one on the one side, 
the other on the other side. Brother Watts, can, can I use you as an illustration? I, Brother Watts is, in this illustration, the man of God. He's leaning against the stone now. I'm Aaron. There's a her here next to me. Moses' hands have grown weary. So, what does Aaron do? He says, here Moses, use my shoulder. Let me hold you up. Let me help you bear the burden. They begin to lift together the hands of the man of God. And as the hands of the man of God and the rod of God is exalted up into the heavens, Moses says, tell me how is it going down there? Oh, the tide is turned. We're winning the battle. You see your nephew down there? Yeah, I do. Yeah, he looks like he's safe. You see your children down there? Yes, I do. I think they're going to be all right. You see that family, those people that live next to you? You you see them down there? How about those people who sit uh, on the same pew with you every Sunday? Do you see them? Do you see what's going on down there? Yes, I do. I think they're winning the victory, Moses. Amen. And you see, because Aaron and her stayed up the heavy hands of God's man. Everybody. 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 One. Everybody. One. But if those hands drop, if they fall to the ground, Everybody. Everybody suffers. Thank you, Brother Watts. You see Aaron and her standing beside Moses and they they recognize this is the man of God. This is the man that God placed here. This is the man that God has given us to lead us, to feed us, to love us. And we've got to stand with him. I I want to give you just some practical thoughts on how you can help your preacher. First of all, I'd say this, pray for him. Pray for your pastor and his family. I'm encouraged by your pastor. I'm encouraged by his dear wife and her gracious spirit. And I see them from time to time. I I don't live with them. If I did, I'm sure I'd have a little different perspective. And if you live with me, you'd have a little different perspective too. None of us are perfect people, right? But aren't you glad that despite our imperfections and our sinfulness that God loves us and He uses us? I've seen people pick their preacher apart. I've heard them do it. And I always put a stop to it, by the way, when I hear it. Don't you be a part of that crowd. You pray for your preacher. You pray for him. Here's the second thing you can do. You can follow him. Let me give you a reference. 1 Corinthians 6, 15 and 16. 1 Corinthians 16, I'm sorry, 15 and 16. Paul writing says, I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus that is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. This is what he says, that you submit yourselves unto such and to everyone that helpeth with us and laboreth. Do you know that when we submit 
to the pastoral authority, the biblical authority. And listen, I know this man. He's no dictatorial leader. He loves God and loves his church. But if you want what's best for this church, if you want what's best for your family, you're going to submit to his leadership. You know, I found out that a church, getting everybody to agree on everything is impossible. And you know, I said to our people, I said, we may disagree, but we are not going to be in disagreement. You understand the difference between those two things? We may disagree on certain things, but as a church, when we vote as a congregation that we're going to go forward, we're not going to be in disagreement. And so I want to encourage you to follow the leadership of your pastor. Then I want to encourage you to serve alongside him so that he is able to pray, to study, and to plan. You know, the main job of the pastor is to give himself to the ministry of the Word of God. Acts chapter 6 and verse number 2. There was a murmuring in the church. You remember the, there was one group that felt neglected. By the way, somebody always feels that way. And boy, the devil can climb up on our shoulder and whisper in our ears and say, Hey, you know, they don't treat you like they treat the rest of them. Poor you. And you ought to look at him and say, you know, you're exactly right. And they treat me a whole lot better than you would because you'd take me to hell. But because of the grace of God, I'm going to heaven tonight. And I got a church family. Why don't you tell him that every once in a while? So there was a little problem. And the disciples gathered together. And they said in verse 2, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But notice here, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. We want our pastor to have time to study the Bible. We want him to have time to develop sermons, to preach to us. Because do you know the greatest thing your preacher can do to help you is preach the truth of God's Word to you? It's not just simply to be your buddy and go to fishing and hunting and all the other things that you might hope he will do with you. And maybe he does that. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know. But I know people put some very unreasonable expectations on their preacher. They they almost... They desire to be catered to rather than to be preached to. And the greatest difference that he can make in your life is preaching the Word of God because it is the power of the Word that will transform your life. And so, these men, we believe are the first deacons, come alongside the preacher to help take care of the business aspect of taking care of the widows so that the preachers can continue to give themselves to the ministry of prayer and the word. Let me give you another way you can help your pastor. Be faithful to the Lord in his church. Be faithful to the Lord in his church. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 22 through 26 that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. 
And the Bible tells us that when we, when we come together, we consider one another to provoke and to love and to good works. Do you know that your presence here helps the atmosphere of this meeting? Your presence here encourages the saints. Your presence here encourages the man of God. Let's be faithful to the house of God. I want you to think if you came on a Sunday morning, you greeted the people, you noticed the choir leader was here, the people were getting ready for the choir, and you said, wait a minute, where's the preacher? He's not here. Does anybody know where Brother Steins is? No. Well, that's unusual. Wonder where he is. And so finally somebody gets a hold of him. And Brother Steins said, you know, I've just had a tough week. I just didn't feel like coming today. How would that play? But you might think it's okay for you to do that. But you don't think it's okay for him to do that. And by the way, it's not okay for him to do that. And by the way, it's not okay for you to do that. Now, you know, there are always circumstances that people have. But I'm just so amazed. I'm talking about legitimate circumstances where people can't come. I'm not talking about those things. But I am so amazed at how nonchalant people are about the church of the living God. Let's be faithful. We encourage one another. We encourage the preacher. Hey, here's another way you can encourage him. Participate in the worship services. Sing when they're singing. Listen when the preaching's going on. Pray when it's time to pray. Give when it's time to give. Stay involved in the message. I tell our kids in the Christian school, you listen with your eyes as well as your ears. Pay attention. Hey, say amen every once in a while. That's like saying sick them to a bulldog, right? It encourages the preacher. You know what he knows? He knows that you're with him. He knows that you're being helped. And that helps him. Because I'm going to tell you, it's awful lonely up here. And it's very intimidating. So help your preacher. Let me give you just a couple more and I'll I'll finish. Be a problem solver. There's a guy I'm thinking about and he'll tell me everything in the church that needs to be fixed. I finally said to him, I said, sir, why don't you help me fix them? You see, there's a thing called a thermometer. And a thermometer tells you what the temperature is. And there's a thing called a thermostat. And a thermostat doesn't tell you what the temperature is. It regulates what the temperature will be. Instead of pointing out all the problems in the church, be a problem solver. Help your preacher. Encourage him. Serve God alongside of him. Uh, Here's something else. Understand that your pastor can't be everywhere he'd like to be. And there are times he's invited to multiple events and he, he can't be at all of them. There are times, honestly, he and his wife just need to be at home and rest. You need that, right? So does he. By the way, he didn't know I was going to preach this. But I expect him to give me a really great love offering after I did preach. <laughs> I want to help you. I want to help your church. And I want to help your preacher. I want to see this church go forward for God, and it is. And I'm thankful for that. 
And so I want you to know that the victory that your children experience depends upon your faithfulness and your willingness to stand with the man of God and lift up his heavy hands. Don't push them down. Lift them up. Help tend to the flock. Instead of coming up to him and saying, have you seen Sister Agnes? She hasn't been here in four weeks. I think she's mad at you. Instead of that, why don't you find out where Sister Agnes is and come and tell him? That will relieve his mind. You see the difference? I think so-and-so's got upset about something. Well, then why don't you, why don't you, since you see it, go to so-and-so and encourage them in the Lord? That's what a church is supposed to do. We help tend to the flock. Serve in the ministries of your church with enthusiasm. Take care of the pastor and his family. That's biblical. Some said, Lord, you, 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 uh, you keep our pastor humble and we're going to keep him poor. <laughs> the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 5, we are, to, we are to take care of those who labor in the word and doctrine with double honor. It means we pay them. We take care of them. We meet their needs. And then deal with disagreement in a spiritual manner. When you have disagreement, you know what the Bible says, only by pride cometh contention. Have you ever heard of a church split? How many of you have heard of a church split? Does anything good ever come out of a church split? I remember I worked for UPS. I was... Uh, I, I lived in Knoxville, and uh, I was delivering in a town called Harrogate, Tennessee, near Cumberland Gap. And I was delivering to a place, and I was talking to this lady, and she told me she lived in Middlesbrough, Kentucky. And I said, I know of a church up there, and we got to talking. And I said, where do you go to church? And she said, I go to Old Yellow Gap Baptist Church number two. I thought, well, that's a strange church name. I said, well, might I ask... Is there an old yellow gap Baptist church number one? And you guessed it, there is. And how did that happen? Church split. Do you know what causes church splits? Pride. People full of themselves, people who are immature, people who will not understand that if we have the word of God and the Holy Spirit, even though we might disagree on some things, we can be in agreement and we can deal with disagreement in a mature spiritual manner and if I do that you know what I'm doing I'm coming alongside the man of God and I'm holding up his heavy hands and so we see here this evening the heavy hands of God's man and then we see the helping hands of godly men I want to, know, I want to call your attention to the last thing And that is the upheld hands of God's man. In verse number 12, the close of that verse, the Bible said, And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. The day's almost over. The battle is raging. How are we going to finish? I don't want to quit, do you? I don't want to quit. There's too much at stake. 
And so they held up his hands unto the going down of the sun. Verse 13, would you read it with me? And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Hey, guess what? They won the battle. The soldiers were safe. They came home to their wives. The children that would have been taken into slavery by the Amalekites were spared. The people of God went forward. The church was preserved for the good of God's kingdom, for the good of the community, for the good of the families, of the members of the church because of the upheld hands of God's men. Again, when we lift up the hands of God's man, everybody wins. But when we watch them fall, we all suffer. So I want to encourage you tonight, church. Let's lift up the hands of God's man. And you know, you couldn't have a church like you have unless you've learned that lesson already. But I find it's, sometimes it's good to be reminded. And I want to thank you for your faithfulness. I want to thank you for your testimony. I want to thank you for standing with your pastor. But I want you to understand the importance of continuing to stand with him. And so, Brother Steins, if it's all right with you, I'd like to extend an invitation just a little different tonight. I'd like for you and Miss Darlene to come right here in front of this pulpit. Would you please?